Uh, my name is Dave. I'm a pastor here. And I'm going to start once again by talking about my children. It occurs to me I've done that like three times in a row, but that's where the Holy Spirit led me, so that's where we're going. I have two children. Paradoxically, my children are no longer children. In fact, tomorrow will be the one-month anniversary of my youngest son's nuptials. That means he got married, for those of you who aren't up to speed on that. But at one time, my children were children, and as siblings are wont to do, they would sometimes not get along. I would be in one room of the house and hear a disturbing sound from another part of the house, and I would go to investigate, and my sons would be in mid-kerfuffle. I knew you'd like that. So then the inquiries would begin. Of course, I would remain very calm. What's this then there, I would say? (laughs) I hate getting caught in a lie in public. But then the inquirers would become a little more specific. Why is your brother's belt wrapped around your neck like that? (laughs) How did the cat get in that position? And then, of course, the inevitable, who started it? And the combatants would both give the same answer. But then the inquirers would get more specific. We'd get some details. We'd get down to cause, motive, and reason. And invariably, when we got there, three words would appear. I, me, and mine. I was watching Captain Underpants, and he turned the channel. I wanted to play Super Mario Brothers, but he got to the TV first. He's using my iPad, and he didn't ask, and it's mine. Yes? If you want to see human nature on display in its purest form, watch your children. Particularly about age six, right? Yeah, I see every parent with a six-year-old, their head's about to come off their neck. They don't have to be taught to want. They don't have to be taught to focus on self. And they haven't yet learned how to disguise kind of their selfish interest. And, you know, they don't know how to fulfill their wants with a little bit of stealth. Now, I'm not quite sure how to break this to you. But we are our children. We're just more skilled in the craft of pursuing our own interests without appearing too much to be pursuing our own interest. And that's what James is going to talk to us about this morning. Would you please stand with me? We're going to be reading the first 12 verses of James 4. Now, last time I was up here, I'll wait. There we go. I kind of introduced the text by saying that James was getting a little snarky. Well, this time it kind of appears that he's on a little bit of a rant, a little bit of a diatribe. But don't be mistaken, as we shall see, he has a very structured point to make and some very practical teaching to give us. So let's dig into this. James 4, first 12 verses. James says this, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not that this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? 
but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's pray. Uh, Father God, uh, uh, your word's going to come at us a little bit today. We pray uh, for receptive hearts. We pray for broken hearts. We pray for uh, hearts that seek transformation. Father, guide my words. Uh, May your spirit just dwell in everything that we do this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have a seat. So James begins with a question. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Apparently, there's a problem. Christians seem to be fighting and quarreling. The letter is to Christians. We've talked about that before. And he says, there are quarrels and fights among you. It looks like there are Christians fighting. No way. Maybe we're wrong. Let's see what else James says. You desire and do not have, so you murder. Sounds kind of serious. You covet and cannot obtain, so you, up oh, there it is again, fight and quarrel. It appears that James is claiming that we fight and quarrel. And as we read on... That appears to only be the first of two problems. The first one being that we seem to not get along sometimes. The second one is this. You ask and do not receive. I'm sorry, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Well, we know who the you is again. It's it's the Christians that the letter's addressed to. But who's the object of this asking? Well, it's, it's God, of course. James is speaking about prayer. So, we apparently have two problems to address. There is an inappropriate, unfitting, improper, unseemly, unbecoming relationships between Christians, fighting and quarreling, and a description of a flawed and hampered relationship that we have with God. Well, what is the cause of this problem? James tells us, verse 1, Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Have you you picked up on the language? Fighting, quarrels, murder, and now war? Your passions, James says, your passions are at war within you. Well, what about the flawed relationship with the Lord? What's causing that? Verse 3, you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. It seems that our passions are the problem. I have some questions. Maybe you have questions. What exactly are these passions to which James prefers that are causing the problem? How exactly are they causing the problem? Why the violent language? 
both describing the problems and the root of the problem. And James, if it's not too much trouble, perhaps some guidance on what to do about the situation would be helpful. Let's first talk about the seriousness of the problem. Quarrel, fight, war, murder, fight, quarrel. Those are pretty powerful words. That's just the section in which James is speaking about relationship between you and I. When James gets to our relationship with God, it doesn't get any better. Adulterous, enmity, enemy. I think James is trying to get our attention. I think he's using this language on purpose. And it's appropriate, both in the first century and today. Technology, I got lost there. First century life, brutish, yes? Even everyday life was difficult. The people were exposed to the elements. It's not like here when a thunderstorm comes through and we go and get in our brick wood house and are protected, right? Food and water could make you sick at any point in time. Travel was long and arduous and dangerous. The Romans had a practice of discarding unhealthy babies in their pursuit of their pride and, and being strong and leaders. And we don't have to even speak of the legal system. We know that from Scripture, from what our Lord went through. Now, life is, is far less harsh today, but we are just as desensitized. We have war and violence around the world comes into our living rooms via television, and, and we all but ignore it. There's a pervasive portrayal of violence in our entertainment, our movies, television. And we do all we can to kind of insulate ourselves from this stuff, don't we? So James wants to get our attention, and he does it with this language. He chose this language because he wants us to grasp the severity of the situation that he is talking about. This is not a light matter. He wants us to see our broken relationships as God sees them. This is a serious matter to our Heavenly Father. We are His children. And He doesn't want to have to come in from the other room and break up a fight. Kind of a depressing commentary on the church, is it not? Now, you may be sitting there saying, well, maybe some churches, but not ours. No. Just in this past week, I've had two conversations both of which had the same thing. The church, our church, is not what it's supposed to be. And my response both times was, yeah, I know. The church, our church, is composed of fallen sinful people. So, maybe we shouldn't expect much. But, While it is composed of fallen sinful people, it is also composed of redeemed people who have the Holy Spirit living in them. So maybe we should expect more. James also chose this language when referring to our Heavenly Father. As with the church, all is far from well. Prayer should be a solution to our problems, but James is saying it's a problem in and of itself. And he describes it in two ways. Sometimes we don't even ask. We don't even engage with our Heavenly Father. And when we do, when we do ask, we mess it up. 
And it's a serious problem. Look at the words he uses here. Adulterous, enmity, enemy. James has chosen his words carefully and intentionally. We have two problems. We are fighting within the church and we are enemies of God. These problems are serious and they have serious consequences and they have the same root. Our passions. So let's, let's talk about these passions. What, what are we talking about here? What are they? How are they causing this problem? Last week we talked about wisdom. And there's a, there's a connection here. If we look at, at the uh, opening verse from last week, 3.13, James asks, Who is wise and understanding among you? This week he starts with a, a different question, but with a similar format. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? He's, he's asking questions about us, isn't he? And this week, today, he's using words like desire and covet and phrases like do not have and cannot obtain. Look at verse 16 of chapter 3. From last week, he says this, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Last week, jealousy and selfish ambition. This week, desire and covet. Last week, disorder and every vile practice. This week, quarrels and fighting. I can't help but wonder if James is talking about the same thing. I think he is. This week, James is telling us about consequences, the consequences of drawing from the well of earthly wisdom that we talked about last week and embracing unspiritual, demonic wisdom based on jealousy and self-ambition. So James is now describing the effect. Earthly wisdom is based in self-willed determination. And this is what James is referring to in Passions. We want what we want. And what we want is not what God wants or what he wants for us. We want what our selfish nature desires. The word passions that we see here is the same root, hedonai, as hedonism, the pursuit of selfish pleasure. Now, before we go on, because this has been a little bit of a downer so far, hasn't it? Let me make sure we understand the biblical description of human nature, right? I want to make sure we're clear on this. We as human beings have many yearnings and desires, passions, yes? And these yearnings and desires can be oriented toward objects and objectives that are in sync with our Lord. The yearnings themselves are not necessarily a problem, but, but we have a strong and natural tendency towards yearning for and desiring out of jealousy and selfish ambition. This is part and parcel to our sinful nature conceived in a garden long ago where our ancestors acted just as we would have had we been there. Never lose that thought. So we have wants that we seek to satisfy at the expense of others, at the expense of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay? Now, the desires in and of themselves are not a problem. We have had a rash of people in our community buying and moving into new homes, building homes, getting new places of residence, right? I went to two housewarmings this week, and I was so encouraged. Both housewarmings, after a time of fellowship, the new owners of the home stopped, talked to their guests about what this home was for. Each one of them said, this is not my home. This home belongs to the Lord, and here's how we're going to use it. And then we prayed over those houses. 
I've been in homes of, of new owners where they've said, yeah, we got this house. Look at how good this will be for a CG. I've been in homes where the new owners have said, this room, we're, we're making it special because our parents might need to live here later. So we're making it wheelchair accessible. Those are good yearnings. Those are proper yearnings. We want a home, and these people are using it for the Lord. There's nothing wrong with a desire. We want to take care of our family. We want a good job. We want to be able to be, provide, Right? I myself have a strong yearning to be in God's creation. I like going out in the woods. I like camping. Those are okay. But what happens is when our desires get in alliance with our sinful nature, when we pursue things that come at the expense of caring for others, then we have a problem. This word hedonism also has a notion of Uh, malevolence, of negativity, of taking advantage of others. So our passions steeped in sin, not in and of themselves, lead to these fights and quarrels. And these passions also impact our relationship with our Lord. We forsake the things of God. We decide not to obey him to get what we want, to satisfy our passions. This is a problem. How does James say, say about this? You adulterous people. Yikes. That kind of hurts. What happened to brothers and dear brothers and all of that, James? And actually, this is a single word in the Greek. The single word is adulteresses. Female, plural. Where does that come from? Well, the Old Testament frequently compares our relationship with God, right? to a marriage relationship. Metaphorically, the Lord choosing a people for himself is equated with a young man pursuing and then claiming a bride. So James's his accusation to us plays on that theme. Isaiah 54 says this, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For your maker is your husband. And then when Israel pursues worshiping idols, as Chase talked about earlier today, Jeremiah says this, Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so you have been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. So James is just playing on this language. And now we are the wives who have betrayed our wedding vows. And if that doesn't sting enough... James goes on to provide a little bit of a political analogy. He says this, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. God has made peace with us through the reconciling work of Christ, yes? Now, after he has done that for us, we have once again befriended his enemy, the world. Now, what James is not saying, be clear on this, is that the situation means that our our big peace, capital P, with, with God is null and void. That's been done. Yes, we were enemies of God in the big sense. Yes, our sin separated us from him. Yes, we did not want him. He called us. He sent Christ. Christ walked this earth, lived the life we couldn't, died the death we should have. That's done. That peace is forever We were reconciled while we were still God's enemy, 
and not on the condition of unbroken friendship, thank goodness, but on the foundation of the will and determination of God in Christ. That's done. Peace was declared. It won't be undeclared. However, we are still capable of living before the peace lives. We are still capable of day-to-day rejecting God. We must not deceive ourselves into thinking that we can live in intimate fellowship with our Father and at the same time follow our hearts and our passions that take us back into the world, a world that does not recognize Christ's lordship, a world where his authority is not acknowledged. Make no mistake, God tolerates no rival. He wants us and he wants us all. So where are we so far, James? We have two problems. There's strife among us, and we have a flawed and hampered relationship with the Lord. The cause of both are our passions, our sinful self, setting its heart on satisfying this or that desire, will not allow anything or anyone to stand in its way. You desire and do not have, so you murder, says the Holy Spirit through James. Our sinful self, setting its heart on satisfying this or that desire, prays that God will fulfill that sinful desire. You ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Actually, I've been misleading you. We have one problem. And that problem is our damaged relationship with God. That problem leads to this problem. The breach in our relationship with God is the source of these. We can't get the horizontal right till we get the vertical right. Husbands and wives, if this isn't right, this is not going to work. Parents and children, brothers and sisters in Christ. Here's the heart of the matter, and that is where James goes next. So how do we resolve this problem? James tells us, first we have to kind of dispense with verse 5. In a commentary, this was said, James 4, 5 is a minefield of unsolved problems for the expositor. Here's what it says. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? We won't go over all the problems. We don't want to get into a theology lecture. But we do know from this verse a couple of things. Number one, James wants to support his point with scripture. And although that quote doesn't appear in scripture anyway, where it's reflective of all of scripture, we know that the word jealously expresses God's desire who loves us intensely and loyally to have us love him back intensely and loyally. And we know that the the verse expresses an incompatibility of our passions with the Holy Spirit. So, it's been kind of rough so far, yeah? Fighting and quarreling, war waging within us, murder and covet, asking wrongly, adulteresses, enemies and enmity of God. Look at verse 6. But he gives more grace. Wow. God, despite the quarreling, the fighting, the murdering, the adultery, is tirelessly on our side. He always has more grace at hand for us. He is never less than sufficient. No matter what we do to him, God is never beaten. His resources are never at an end. His patience is never exhausted. His generosity knows no limit. Augustine said this, God gives what he demands. 
won't. But God's grace has a counterpoint in our humanity. God's grace demands a response. And what James is telling us is this response is this, humility. In verses 7 to 10, he's going to give us no less than 10 commands. And each of these commands is based on humility. Look how he frames this thing, the rest of verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And then you go down to verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So James frames these ten commands in there. And the opposite of humility is pride. And what does he say about pride? God opposes that. All of these commands are based on this. Setting ourselves aside. That self-seeking, selfish ambition, that pride and humbling ourselves. The benefits of grace. And verse 6, more grace are ours as we offer obedience and more obedience. In these four verses, James provides the very practical terms. You want to be humble? James says, here it is. Here's how we do it. He presents a carefully ordered program for humility. One element built upon the next, and he does that around four themes. The first is this, active allegiance. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. What does, he, what does he mean by submit? In the English language, this word has, has a variety of meanings, one of which is kind of the submission at the, at the end point of a struggle as when a prisoner is tortured and finally gives in. You know, that, that's a form of submit. That's not what he's talking about here. The Greek here expresses a sense of enlistment, as in a military enlistment. What James is saying is we need to voluntarily take up an allegiance to God, fight battles with him under his, ban- under his banner. So, so what does that look like? What does that look like practically, James? When a choice is to be made, we make choices every day, hundreds of them. If a choice pits God's way against the world's way, which do you choose? Who is your friend? Who is your enemy? What does your life reflect? If your friends, acquaintances, co-workers, and relatives were asked... What does, what does so-and-so's life reflect? Does it reflect being enlisted to the living God? Would they say that's him? That's her? Which wisdom do you choose, heavenly or earthly? Have you submitted? And then following right on the heels of that, resist the devil and he will flee for you, from you. The second part of allegiance is taking up a posture of opposition against God's enemy. And the, and the juxtaposition here is important, Right? If we're not submitting to God, Satan doesn't have to spend time with us. We're not a problem. But if we are submitting to God, then we must resist the devil. We draw his attention. But notice this. James said, resist, and he will flee. Not resist, and well, hopefully he will go. Not resist, and there's a good chance. Resist, he will. We'll flee. So step one in being humble before the Lord is to enlist in submission to God and consequently resist his enemies. Second, cultivate fellowship with our Lord. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. We are to deliberately cultivate fellowship with our Heavenly Father. 
And notice there's a promise that goes with it. We go to him, he draws us near. And notice again, there's an order. First, we enlist in battle. And then, once we are enlisted, we need to fight for regularity in our time in word, in prayer, in worship, in fellowship. But note, this doesn't just happen. We're not going to just drift and bump into our Bible. It must be approached with intent. We have to want it. I haven't given you a climbing analogy lately, so here we go. One form of climbing that we like to engage in is called bouldering. No ropes, no equipment, shoes in a chalk bag, and you climb no higher than 12 to 15 feet or so. And the characteristic of bouldering is, and you have a pad, so if you fall, it's a little bit of cushion, is that it's very technical usually, and it's very powerful. A lot of strength is involved. So I have a climbing friend I've been climbing with three or four years, and he had been climbing for 10 years before me, so he's a better climber than I am. I get to be better, and then he gets better than I am, and it's really irritating. He's always one step ahead of me, right? So we'll be doing a boulder problem, and he'll do a move, and he'll make it look easy. And then I'll get on the boulder problem, and I'll try, and I'll fall. I'll try, and I fall. I try, and I fall. And I'll look at him, am I doing something technically wrong? And he would just deadpan. He would just look at me in the eye and say, you got to want it. you got to want to make that move. If you want to draw near to God, you got to want it. There should have been an amen there. It's all right. <laughs> I do want to make another really important point, and this is the one point as I prepared that hit me harder than anything. All right, let's think about what we learned so far. In the church, we are, poor, we are prone to strife. The bigger we get, the more there's going to be. We're, poor, we're prone to quarrels and fighting. Yes? And the fundamental reason is that our passions separate us from God. We are not close enough to Him. We, we were made His enemy. And we have learned so far that to resolve this, we have to commit to Him, and we have to draw near to Him. Now think about what that means. That means that our spiritual discipline, our being in the Word, our being in prayer, our fellowship is critical to our relationships in the church. We have this tendency to think that our, our quiet time is, is between me and the Lord. If I am not in the Word, if I am not in prayer, if I am not in fellowship with my brothers and sisters, if I am not drawing near to God, it doesn't just affect me. It affects you and us. We need to be thinking about that. We don't live in a vacuum. We are a family. Taking care of that takes care of this. Third, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. James is directing us to a process of purification. Cleaning up both the outside, represented by the hands biblically, and the inside, a purification of the heart. And notice that after the command, cleanse your hands, you sinners and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He's focusing on us. We speak over and over again from up here about, about transformation and sanctifying, and we, t we emphasize a lot that this is not something we can do on our own, that it's, it's the Holy Spirit that transforms us, yes? But we most certainly have a role, a responsibility, and that's what James is emphasizing here. 
But notice also again the proper place of this command. We vow allegiance, we draw near, and it is only then when we know the reality of his presence and we come under his holy influence when we draw near that we begin to see the demand on our personal holiness and we get motivated by desire. We, we may even have a passion to be like our God. There's an order, commitment, draw near, desire, desire to be like him. Finally, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Well, if we would have just taken that out of context, that would have been a bummer. What? What happened to the, you know, count it all joy? Wretched, mourn, weep, laughter to mourning, joy to gloom. You know, didn't Christ say something about having life and having it abundantly? Well, we're talking about sin here. With regard to sin, we are to be ruthless. Our sin should repulse us. It should be wretched. It should sadden us. It should bring us to tears. The world revels in sin. The world attaches laughter to sin. Our response to to sin should be mourning and gloom, not laughter and joy. Thank you. Done properly. So, we have a problem. We have a flawed and hampered relationship with God. This leads to fights and quarrels. The fights and quarrels are simply a manifestation of this wrong relationship. The source of that is our passions. Selfish ambition, self-centeredness, puts us at enmity with God, makes us his enemy. And the solution is straightforward. One word. Humility. Humility. The quality or condition of being humble. A modest opinion or estimate of one's own importance. Not just a general state of humility, a specific posture. Humble yourselves before the Lord. He will exalt you. This humility is is beautifully exemplified by the parable that Jesus told. Do you remember it? Tax collector and the Pharisee both praying. Pharisee prays, thank God I'm not him. Not much humility there. Tax collector, God, I'm a sinner. Forgive me. And what's Jesus' response to that? Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. We have two options. We can humble ourselves, or we can eat humble pie. Are you familiar with that expression? To eat humble pie means this, to have humility thrust upon you, and usually in embarrassing conditions. We've all been there at least once, have we not? So what James says to us is here. Here's a program for humility. A decisive taking of sides, choosing God and wanting to be in his presence. We have to want it. We have to want to draw near. That prompts us to long to be by him, and that leads us to pursue his likeness and more deeply be sorrowful for our sin. Now just to finish this all off, in verses 11 and 12, James says, in case you're not getting it, I got an example for you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. 
There is only one lawgiver and judge. He was able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? We've been talking a lot about talking, have we not, in James? About the tongue and the danger that it has? What James is saying here in the word speak evil is defaming or disparaging our brother, denigrating them, to speak with the intent to do harm. Now, sometimes we need to speak strongly to one another. We need to call each other out on our sin. We need to be involved in the process of sanctification for each other. But he's not saying this. He's not saying never say a negative word. Because there's a place for that. What he is saying is, do not speak to defame and disparage another. Even if it's the truth. We can do that with the truth, right? The truth can be used inappropriately. Because when we do that, we sin against humility. The first thing we do when we speak poorly of a brother, deep down we know unvaryingly our goal is to make me feel better. That's not humility. But what does James say here? More importantly, when we speak evil against our brother, we defy being humble before the Lord. It is God who decides what is good and evil. What is the law? It is God who determines when that law is transgressed. When we speak evil against our brother, when we denigrate and disparage, we assume one or both of those positions. And James tells us there is only one lawgiver and judge, and it ain't us. The path to wisdom is humility. James lays it out. Vow allegiance to God, draw near to God, pursue his likeness, lament and repent. Jesus didn't have to worry about the last two. He lived a sinless life we never could, right? But he was the perfected model of the first two. Never wavered. In the garden, your will, not mine. Drew near to his father perfectly. He and the father were one. When he instructed us to partake in community and communion, which is what we're moving to now, he said, remember me. Remember what I've done. Remember who I am. Remember who, what, I, what I've lived. So today, as we, as we approach the Lord's table, let's remember the humility he endured on our behalf. Communion is for believers. If you've not yet taken Christ as your Lord, we encourage you to... Ponder the message. A little bit depressing at the beginning. Got better at the end. More grace, more grace. Let's go. Let's walk away with that one, shall we? Uh, I'll be in the back. If you have questions, there'll be prayer responders around the corner in the gym here at Redeemer. Uh, we break off a piece of the bread. We dip it in the cup. We have both wine and juice as your conscience leads you. The wine is marked with twine. Let's pray. Father God, uh, we thank you for calling us out. We thank you for alerting us to the danger of pursuing our passions, Father. We thank you that through James, you taught us how to be humble, to submit to you, to draw near to you, to pursue being like you, to having a deep sense of, of lament over our sin, Father. May this, may this guide us as we go forward. May your spirit work in us. May we be willing participants in his work in our lives, Father. Uh, we just thank you for what you've done. We thank you for Christ Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.